international aid in the future? Should it be a policy that we only work with organizations that are doing, that nothing is given for free? Well, there are times when you have to give things for free. But I say mostly that's in the times of disaster. Mm -hmm. So uh, emergency response. Um, I have a, a section on how to convert from an agency that does emergency response to becoming one of uh, sustainable development. Uh, it's not, as the UN calls it, a continuum, which is like saying changing from first gear to second gear. It's a transformation, changing from reverse to first. Um, mm. So there's a lot that it involves. Mm. I don't think putting rigid policy directives will work, saying we won't give such and such. That tends to make it very difficult to be flexible. And I think in different situations you would give to certain NGOs and other agencies. And in other situations you don't. And the fact that they might hand out the like, hell, when I first got to, to Uganda, uh, World Vision was giving shoes to teachers because that was their education program. Because the teachers didn't have shoes. And uh, people laughed at them. They took the shoes. So there's a lot of things done in the name of aid that is, as I say, it really is anti-developmental. Mm -hmm. And so you need people in the field, in donor agencies, and their bosses, and their governments to have the political will to say, look flexibly, look at it, and do not continue giving money when it's being uh, diverted for personal reasons, or when it's given out for free and causing dependencies. You need that strength, and right now, there's so many agencies that they're committed to giving money, CETA, UNICEF, and everything else. They have a hard time playing police officer. But you have to. You have to uh, give them the mandate and the power to say, no, we're not going to do that. And, uh, and to sort of have a, a, a stick as well as a carrot. But sometimes when some organizations, they give money or governments, they give money, they have certain restrictions about what it can be used for. And that can also be detrimental, don't you think? Absolutely. The U.S. government says no aid money if they're going to, uh, the same organization's going to uh, have abortions, even mm -hmm. though the money isn't being used even for abortions. Even if you yeah. in yeah. some countries. Yeah. talk about condoms. It's abstinence-only campaigns for the U.S. embassies. They have strings attached, which can be just... Yes, but I, I have argued that there should be strings attached. Okay. But the right kind of strings. Right. That is really a bad string. What about the string of, you can't use any of the, uh, the grant for administration costs? Bullshit. Operation costs That's are absolute so nonsense. Isn't it? Because you can't have an organization... That doesn't have administration. Yeah, but, but, a big but. World Vision CEO has an annual salary of $685,000 a year, right? Uh, based uh, on people's donations. Uh, based on, on people's donations. donations. Uh, the uh, 
Salvation Army CEO, with approximately the same number of people in the field, has an annual salary of $12,000 a year. Now, think about it. Wow. So, yeah, there is problem of costs and how you're spending the money. And there are problems with administration, but you can't tie people's hands behind their back and say no administrative costs. Where are they going to get that money from? They mm -hmm. need they need to send telexes. They need to they have need offices. Staff. They need yep. staff. They need mm -hmm. computers. They need vehicles. And that's all administrative costs. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, in the aid industry, I learned how to hide those things. You know, you put it in a budget for for in the field when in fact it's for your car. But yeah. um, that's that's negative too because it teaches aid workers to be liars. Exactly. Yeah, it's small scale corruption, really. And I remember when I was in Zambia and we were applying for every grant we applied for. It said not to be used for administration costs. Yeah. And it was ridiculous because we're we would basically have to find one complete donor simply for administration because no one was funding it. Right. Well, it's it the horrible. same in Canada. Yeah. There, I mean, the nonprofit I worked for in Winnipeg, we had the same exact problem. Right. Couldn't find funding for operation costs. Right. I have it. I when you since you love Africa as much as I do, and and you do, and all so many others in there. Imagine Africa twenty years from now. What's it going to be like? So many ifs. So many. So many ifs. I mean, if we look back in Africa right after World War II, how many people could have predicted there's been so many civil wars, so much a decrease in, in wealth, so much more poverty, so much big inequality between the rich fat cats and the common people. Oh. Yeah. So but I wouldn't want to say, but if things keep going the way they are, yeah. it's going to be a lot worse. So what about the, the world and resources? So. Um, Africa still has a lot of resources that the world is still hankering for. Absolutely. So I see the Chinese in there building highways. Sure. Uh, Smart pre people. Preparing to tap resources, <laughs> right? Precisely, yeah. So do you th I have this strange feeling that there is Africa will have its day. Maybe. Maybe. Remember, too, that there's a picture in rich countries, especially Canada, that the third world is full of teeming populations. Yes. Economists have demonstrated that Africa is underpopulated. Only 10% of the arable land in Africa is under cultivation. So, with the Chinese and their big population yeah. and their need for water and food, would look to Africa as being a really a breadbasket that hasn't been tapped. Absolutely. Did you just discover something new? I just had a light go on in my head. Mm -hmm. hmm. So it's not just for the gold and the diamonds and all that. It's the no. basic stuff like food. Yeah, like water and like land. Yeah. Good stuff, lots of sunshine. So yeah, lots of sunshine. And you know that so much of the Tropical crops like cocoa depend on the rainforest because they need shade. And the big European companies have come in and bribed the chiefs and cut down all the big hardwoods. 
that shape's no longer there. They've wiped out the rainforest. They're destroying the real value of that land. That's right. The soil gets eroded and then... It's lateralization. It becomes solid because it's uh, iron oxide. It becomes hard as pavement. Well, it becomes uh, like a laterate air airport. Phil, <coughs> could you say something about the uh, variations on slavery that may be continuing in Africa concerning children and women and the whole works? There's a lot of slavery. Um, I'm more familiar with Ghana because I've been following this, but the fishing kids. Kids are given, their parents would be given a hundred bucks and the kids would be sent to go and learn something and they end up being slaves helping fishermen and not going to school and um, working like that. There's also uh, an institution that is considered so good in that educated women get some distant cousin's daughter to come and work as a house girl, but they don't give the, her education and she works sweeping and cleaning the beds and having sex with the husband and stuff like that. And uh, it's incredible exploitation. It's been more and more documented, even though most Ghanaians, educated Ghanaians, find it hard to swallow that that's the reality. So there's all that kind of stuff. But actually the worst slavery that I found was when I worked in Pakistan, Afghanistan. Uh, two kinds. One was where a wealthy landowner would give money for a big wedding and the family would owe that money mm -hmm. and uh, they'd go into bonded labor and kids and the families would have to work either making these carpets, this carpet you're sitting on is guaranteed not done by child labor because it comes from Pakistan. But so many carpets that we see as Persian carpets coming from Pakistan are in fact done by these kids. And the other is in the brick factories where kids, I've seen them barely toddlers carrying bricks in the hot sun and of course they get skin cancer and burning and stuff like that by the time they're grown up kids doing carpets have their fingers gone because they've been cut by the needles and stuff like that. That's one kind and the other kind is what are called the camel kids. Rich Saudis or their representatives would go to poor rural communities in Bangladesh and, and Pakistan and say here's 200 bucks, we'll take your child to Saudi Arabia, the holy country, and give them a good Islamic education and they're, they become camel kids. And the Saudis love gambling on camel races. And the rule of the races is you have to have a human being on the camel. And it doesn't say how old it can be. Oh. And it's amazing if you have a, a two or a three-year-old kid tied to a camel, it screams, and the camel runs faster. So they, and I've seen through Swedish Save the Children secret uh, videos of camel kids on these camels and it is just you want to throw up when you see the way they're treated and naturally they're going to be sexually exploited both 
little boys and little girls are going to be sexually exploited. So they're ruined. By the time they're grown up, they're not grown up at all. They're dead. So can I, I just want a follow-up question. Is there anything that uh, the best intended, uh, intentioned development policies or programs could do to touch that phenomenon? It's very hard because it's very hard to do anything uh, about Saudi Arabia. They're too wealthy and we are too much addicted to their oil. And uh, so and the governments that could do something like US, they're not interested at all in reforming what goes on in Saudi Arabia. They don't give a damn. I wondered, Phil, if you were to turn the world around a little bit and we think, when I, I came to Canada as an immigrant, you did, uh, you were born here, you, a lot of you were born here, but when Canada opened its doors to immigration and people came from around the world, you had some of the smartest you know, people come and contribute into, to this country. What if an African country like Uganda, that, where I'm from, was going to say, you know, they all have very closed immigration policies, very tight, right? What if they said, come here, live here, let's do some reverse brain drain without saying that, but say, open their immigration policies, have strict interviews, strict everything the way we do here, and invite the world to come there and participate in their, in their development. Absolutely, it would work, and Museveni is trying to do that. Is he is, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he has uh, made an official policy to the Uganda nations. Yeah. And he has invited them back, but there is a lot of corruption involved in their coming back. Yes, it is, yeah. Um, I think Idi Amin really should have a statue put up on his behalf in Ottawa, one of the greatest benefactors <laughs> to the Canadian economy. The Ugandan Asians that came brought with them their capital mm, yeah. and brought with them incredible management skills. Mm. And okay, so they pissed off Idi Amin because they didn't want their daughters to marry them, him. He wanted them all. Um, <laughs> so what? They have brought incredible benefit to the economy of Canada when they have come. I mean, we're talking in millions of dollars per year in, invested in the Canadian economy yeah. by the Ugandan Asians. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. But, well, when I was in, in Amsterdam, I was sitting at the airport, and I'm in Amsterdam, and I'm thinking to myself, it's Christmas time, yeah. I'm thinking to myself, I'm in Africa. This is like all of Africa in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. They're all going home for holidays, but they live all over the world. What if all those people with all the skill sets that they have gained all over the world, what if there the diaspora goes back yeah. and makes a difference? Well, yes and no. They would also put out local people out of their jobs. They would. Or and create it's, jobs. It's, that's it. If they're in business and if they can do generation of wealth, income generation, rather yeah. than just transfer, yeah. they'll be positive. But, you know, sometimes aid looks good on the surface, but it's not. Yeah. Uh, way back in the early 50s, the government of the UK donated several locomotives to the government of India. 
because it wanted to help the Indian train industry, which was, it's a very viable organization. And so they and said, complex. <laughs> yes. Well, they sent these excellent locomotives to India, and that was good for what it did, but what it also did, it put out of business the local companies in India that built locomotives. They went bankrupt because they couldn't compete with aid, free gifts of locomotives. I, I can't believe that the British government didn't know that they would actually do well, that. Well, how about Canada? <laughs> when Kwame Nkrumah uh, <laughs> took over Ghana, mm -hmm. Canadian government donated huge uh, tankers full of wheat to, to Ghana and sent in experts to show how to build beehive uh, ovens. And a lot of women learned how to cook bread with the wheat and they built uh, some uh, grinding factories, uh, although they could use the same local machines that they did for grinding corn and what have you. And Ghana developed a marvelous uh, industry of baking bread. But you see, bread is totally foreign to Ghana. Mm -hmm. They never ate any wheat product at all prior to Canada bringing all that in. Mm -hmm. Now they're wheat dependent. To the point where Atyampong took over and became the head of the government. They made a list of, um, what is it called? Essential commodities. These were things the government would import and subsidize so the local people would have the essential commodities. So they included things like oils and whatever. And naturally it included bread. It included Canadian wheat. So Canada, <laughs> through its magnanimity, developed a huge market for its wheat product because, of course, it sold it after that. Yeah. Words of wisdom.